wonder-working stars in the precious... Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. <laughs> You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. I love this time of year, when the trees are all aflame and you can smell the smoke of the year burning down, but the air is cool and the grass grows emerald with the lushness of a second spring. I don't hunt anymore. A long time ago I realized my least favorite part of the hunt was the killing, but I still love to be out in the wilds in October, to hear the distant crack of dueling stags echo through the maples. <sighs> The story I'm going to tell you took place at this time of year, and you're not going to believe it. You're going to think it's an old hunter's yarn that somebody came up with while scotch drunk alone in a cabin one night and spread to other scotch drunk hunters later on. You're going to think it's a big fish story. Well, there's no fish in it, and for whatever it's worth, it did happen to me. Whether or not you believe it is your business. Now, all this happened when I was about 12, and I know I'm well-preserved, but that was some time ago. Back before the Fish and Wildlife Ministry had much to do with anything. Before hunters had to wear bright orange and the law prohibited hunting after the hour past sunset. Of course, these are the sorts of things that a lot of hunters complain about. Well, they're damn fools. If they'd ever had a friend accidentally gut shot 15 clicks away from the nearest road, they'd stop griping about the orange real quick. But back then, there was none of that. When you went into the woods, the trees went, dark and close, forever. No laws, no rules, no order, no people. If you met somebody out there, it wouldn't matter if you were wearing orange. They'd be as likely to shoot you on purpose as by accident. Because that's what people do sometimes, out beyond the edge of order. Even now, I feel like that's what half the people I run into out there are looking for. Makes me feel tired and old. I just like to feel the leaves beneath my feet. Anyway, I was twelve. I was up north with my uncle and we were out in the woods deer hunting. It was a dark, late September day. A thin rain was jeweling the trunks. We'd only seen fawns and does and, though the law was far away, it was the way of things that you didn't shoot fawns and does. We were walking in silence through a patch of marshy heath, our boots sucking down between the shards of spiky yellow grass. It had been hours since either of us said anything. My uncle didn't talk much. He and my dad both grew up in the same shack north of Halliburton, and my dad got south as fast as he possibly could. His half-brother stayed north, though, picking up odd jobs, working three months at this logging camp, two months at that lodge. Mostly, he kept himself alive by hunting and fishing. Because his dad was part Anishinaabe, he'd inherited Indian status and was able to hunt without a license, 
even though his father's time in the schools had burned away his ties to the nation. I never asked him about what all that meant to him, though I wish I had. It was the sort of thing we never thought about back then. We still don't, really. The way the laws worked, only men could pass on status if they had a white parent. If my uncle's mom had been Anishinaabe instead, he wouldn't have inherited hunting rights. He'd have been shit out of luck. So the government fucked him, but it fucked others worse. He was the lucky kind of unlucky, in that way. Good things never happened to him. Only the less bad kind of bad things. He put up his hand. I stopped. He pointed along the edge of the trees. In the thin fog, a buck stood among the jack pine, scraping its antlers among the trunks. What's he doing? I asked. Scraping off the velvet, he said. Velvet. You know what that is? It's the difference between antlers and horns. Horns are made of keratin, like nails, scales, claws. Antlers are bones that grow out of an animal's skull and fall off every year. They're the fastest growing bone in the animal kingdom. In June and July, the antlers of a white-tailed deer can grow as fast as an inch a day. An inch. In order to grow so quickly, the bones need blood. Lots of it. And so they're covered in a thin, soft tissue filled with blood vessels. Velvet. When the autumn comes, and the antlers harden, the velvet sloughs off in a bloody mess. Sometimes, if there's a testosterone imbalance, deer get something called peruke, where the antler growth runs wild, creating a clump of bone that spills over the eyes and splits the skull. One ancient deer species, the Irish elk, put so many biological resources into growing huge antlers that all the males suffered from osteoporosis. They went extinct. If there's a parable about masculinity in that example, well, that's up to you to decode. Anyway, a huge scrap of bloody velvet tore from one side of the buck's head and stuck to the tree trunk. Gory and newborn, the skeletal antler pierced upward through the mist. Are you going to take the shot, said my uncle. I lowered the gun. No, I said. I know now that I was reluctant to kill, though I'd done it before. At the time, I said... Its antlers are too small. You want a trophy, he said. Well, sure, I said. He shook his head. I realized then that, for all he'd been hunting his whole life, my uncle didn't have a single trophy in his home. He ate the meat and sold the skins. The antlers he'd tossed back into the woods. Good for the soil, he always said. I felt embarrassed. He hunted to live. I was a crass settler looking for sport. Well, I said, hesitating, maybe not. But the buck was already gone, leaving nothing but a streak of bloody tissue on the bowl of a tree. My uncle straightened. Come on, he said. We'll go deeper. Maybe we'll find something with bigger antlers there. We crossed the rest of the heath and entered the trees. Huge spruce and black oaks blocked the light, run completely amuck. The forest seemed... Primordial, untouched by human footsteps since the dawn of time. Of course, this was an illusion. A hundred years earlier, it would have been cultivated, layered with paths, maintained by controlled burns that would have prevented the huge forest fires we get every summer. But then the government had come, kicked the people off the land, and sent them to live on res, so people like me could have game-hunting paradises. This wasn't the silence of the forest primeval, it was the silence of an abandoned city. Not Terra Nullius, but Detroit. The daylight was starting to go. We hadn't seen another buck. 
I wasn't sure if it was late afternoon or if the clouds were just thickening overhead. No golden hour slanted through the trees. There was only the dimming of the dimness. But then, we heard a sound from up ahead. A wail dopplered through the trees and died away. My uncle and I looked at each other, and the sound rose and fell again. The second time, we recognized it as a human voice. Won't somebody help me? Please. After a long silence, my uncle said, Wait here. Don't move. I nodded. The ground was littered with fallen twigs and branches, but he vanished into the trees without a snap. I'm not sure how long I waited. Probably not very long, though in the silent wood and the dying light, time seemed to stretch. Finally, I heard a crackle, and I looked up, expecting to see my uncle. It wasn't him. On the next hilltop, a huge buck stood among the trees, ten points and well over two hundred pounds. A trophy if I ever saw one and enough meat to last for months. It hadn't seen me yet. I unshouldered my gun, but before I could draw a bead, it had passed over the other side of the ridge. I swore under my breath and fidgeted. My uncle had told me not to move, but surely, just to the top of the hill. I crept up to the summit, making much more noise than my uncle had. Below me, the buck grazed in the mist beside a thicket of skeletal shrubs. I drew a bead. My hand was shaking slightly. I let a long, slow breath and relaxed into the trigger. That sound on a silent day, it echoed down and down and down and down among the mist-shrouded hills. The buck staggered and lurched into the thicket, vanishing through fog and shadow. I sucked in a breath and hissed it out. I cast a glance back down to where my uncle had told me to wait. Just a little further, I thought. The buck wouldn't have gone far, and when I reappeared with it over the hill, my uncle would be proud. To be safe, I pulled a spare flannel shirt from my satchel and tied it around a nearby tree. When I arrived down at the thicket's edge, the red cloth stood out dully from the woods. Pushing aside a final pang of doubt, I ducked into the thicket. It was easy to follow the deer's trail. It was bleeding heavily and several of the thick bony branches showed spots of blood in the gloom. They clustered in close around me, warped, writhed, and twisted, all of them sharp and dead. I wasn't sure what kind of bramble this was, but when I got caught against one of its jagged points, it pierced the thick Pendleton wool I was wearing and drew blood. Swearing, I lurched forward and broke into a clearing. It was slightly brighter here. The brambles had choked out all the trees. There was only thicket all around. The buck stood just ahead of me. In the sudden gray brightness, blood burst from its carcass in sharp scarlet spurts. My bullet hadn't killed it. It was impaled, held upright by the wall of sharp branches it had hurled itself onto. Slack-jawed, I crept forward to find it still gasping out its life, staring at me with wide, dark eyes. A jag of branch was buried in its neck. With each breath, new red rivulets sputtered down the tan, bony limb of the shrub. Further in, a kind of soft, gray fuzz lined the branches, seeming to soak up the blood like the tassel on a Chinese spear. The buck died with a shudder. When I tried to pry him off the branches, I found that they were lodged between his ribs, and, though dry and dead, they were hard and strong enough that I couldn't snap them, 
Even when I dragged backwards on the carcass with all my strength, I tried for several minutes, only managing to slather myself in deer blood. I sat next to it, panting and unsure what to do. Deciding to go and come back with my uncle, I stood again, when a sound made the hair rise on the back of my neck. A wail. A human voice. Won't somebody help me, please? It was coming from just beyond the wall of brambles that had killed the deer. Hello, I, I said. Is someone there? Please. Please. My heart was pounding as I stood. At the base of the bramble wall there was a gap, just large enough for me to crawl through. I called out for my uncle. No response. I had broken out in a cold sweat. The day was getting darker. Please. Please. On hands and knees, I crawled under. More of the branches stabbed at me, but as soon as I was past them I found the inside of the shrub was warm, with more of that fuzzy gray moss or lichen growing everywhere. It smelled of decay down there, and as I crawled I found the little white bones of a mouse or vole clinging to my palms. I gagged and flicked them away as I came through the other side, ducking past a spread of branches that nearly clawed my face. I found myself in another clearing, where the dying light was dimmed by the dead spread of branches overhead. A man lay propped up against the far wall, with his head slumped to the side. Please, he said. Please. I crept over. Are you alright? I said. I don't know why I felt the need to whisper. What happened? Please, please, was all he said. I realized that his eyes were dead. His legs and lower torso seemed oddly flat, and when I pressed into them I realized the clothes were empty, filled only with more of the soft, mossy branches. I gasped and staggered back. My heel caught something in the dirt, a branch, and I fell backwards, crashing into something soft. I heard a moan of pain and leapt to my feet with a shout. It was my uncle. He was pinned against the wall of branches, body held up at an odd angle. If he hadn't been there, I would have been impaled against the branches myself. He moaned again. A sheen of sweat reflected gray light from his face. He had been unconscious, but now his eyes were fluttering. He muttered my name. Uncle, I shouted. I was trying to wake him. His eyes snapped open, and a horror crossed his face as he tried to move forward and remembered he was caught. No blood was pooling beneath him. It all ran along the branches and into the shrub. I think, he gasped. I think he made the same mistake I did. I asked him what was going on, what was wrong with that man. He gave me a wan smile. Dark blood stuck to the edges of his teeth. Don't think it's a man anymore, he said. Looks like he's empty. Looks like he's all drank up. Except for the head and lungs. Help me, it moaned. I noticed something sticking out of the left temple. My doctor tells me that's where you find the language center of the brain, the Broca's area. It was a nub of branch, looking for all the world like... An antler? I said. Look, my uncle whispered in my ear. With a pale hand, he pointed past the dead man. The wall of brambles bulged behind the corpse, and through its gaps I thought I saw something that didn't make sense. 
I stepped around the outgrowth and confirmed the impossible. A deer, a peruke, warped curling antlers spilled from its head and tangled into the thicket, lifting it into the air so that its atrophied lower body dangled at head height. Withered legs twitched beneath its starved belly and vastly overdeveloped chest as it tried to run from me, driven by an instinct its body could not carry out. It stared at me with dark eyes, terrified, a dumb, trapped animal. How long had it been like this? How long could it live? There was nothing for it to eat. A pool of brackish rainwater lay among the antlers that poured down from its head, but it could not bend to drink. I found my answer in the puddle. Remnants of bone rose white through the amber water. Another deer, a wolf and a bear, all impaled on antlers that rolled through the pool and across the clearing to merge with the thicket. No, not merge with, become. I finally understood. The sharp branches were tines. The soft gray moss was no moss, but velvet. This entire time I had been standing inside the deer. As I stepped back and saw for the first time what those flowing hedges really were, I realized that they were full of skeletons. Deer bones, bird bones, monumental bones of moose, all that lived in these woods had been lured, swallowed, devoured, their bodies converted for blood, nutrient, and calcium, so the antlers could continue to grow, inch by inch, day by day, year by year, until more and more of the land was devoured up, and they owned everything. A landslide of revulsion crushed over me, and I stared up at the deer with its flat, stupid herbivore's eyes twitching in the air, trying to escape. What had it gained from any of this? The more the antlers grew, the more they had grown to sustain themselves, yet the deer remained trapped and afraid, emaciated, a victim of its own success. But its eyes were blank and stupid. It couldn't understand or change what it had become. It was the antlers themselves that had control. I took a step back. I heard my uncle call my name. I turned from the deer and rushed back to him. Come on, he said, grunting as he tried to push himself forward. Help me get down from here. Wait, I said. He had gone pale as bone. Look. In the minutes he had been here, the antlers were already growing through him. A sharp nub of bone now pierced the front of his chest. You need a doctor, I said. If we try and move you like this... His cold hand grabbed my arm hard enough to leave marks. I know he said, but you're not going to leave me here like this. He glanced over my shoulder. I don't want to end up like Buddy over there, he said. The dead husk's emaciated skin was drawn tight over its jaws. It looked like it was smiling. Help me, it said. Crying, I took my uncle's arm and pulled him forward. There was a moment of resistance, and then a wet sound. After that, he came away from the wall too easily. He grunted from the pain, but refused to cry out, even as he had to throw his weight against me to keep from passing out. After a moment, he hissed in a breath and stood on his own two feet. I'm going to need that gun, he said, and I passed it to him. He nodded at the gap in the antlers, the one I'd climbed through. For a moment, I didn't realize what he meant. But then I saw the tines were reaching inward over it, like closing fingers, and that every moment I waited, the gap was growing smaller. Better get a move on, he said. 
I went. I still don't know if it was the right thing to do. For all I knew, there was another way out of there. We could have both made it. But I went. I don't know what to say. I wanted to live. Before I climbed under, I saw him limp around the outgrowth and stand, staring up at the deer. My uncle never liked to kill for no reason. I think it would have been a tough decision for him to make, to figure out whether the deer was the villain or the victim. I still think sometimes about the terrified eyes. But then I think about all the bones. I barely made it out of the tunnel. One of the antlers gored my arm as I climbed out. I still have the scar. A minute later and the antlers would have pinned me under there, driving into my flesh and sapping out all the fluids and minerals over the weeks and months to come. I still think about that sometimes, too. It wasn't until I'd climbed out, I suppose, that my uncle made up his mind about the deer. First came the one shot, and then, after a moment, another. That sound on a silent day. Well, that was my uncle. Good things never happened to him, only the less bad kind of bad things. I like to hope he was okay with that. I like to think he'd have smiled and said something like, good for the soil, but I don't know for sure. Like I said, there was a lot of things we didn't talk about back then, and maybe we still don't. Well, without my uncle, I got lost in the woods. It took three days for me to find my way back, and then I spent a week in the hospital with exhaustion and hypothermia. I told them my uncle had a fall, and I'd gone to get help. The search parties never found him. I often think about how that day would have gone if we'd never kicked the people off their land. Maybe someone would have put that deer out of its misery long before. Maybe someone would have got to my uncle in time. Maybe I wouldn't have spent those three nights on the edge of death. Someday soon, people like me are going to have to make right what the government did in our name. Someday soon, the people are going to come back to their land. The city will no longer be abandoned. Until then, I still go walk the woods. Not as a hunter, but an interim caretaker. Marking trails, clearing brush, keeping tabs on the wildlife. You can't let things get too overgrown. I've learned that much. I can tell you don't believe me. I can tell you think it's just a big fish and wildlife story. Well, uh, whether or not you believe me is none of my business. And if there's a parable in any of this, it's up to you to decode. The Wrong Station is made possible by the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Consider visiting today at patreon.com slash thewrongstation. This week's episode, Velvet, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin and arranged for the viola and performed by Ilana Schmid. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and any other of your favorite podcast services. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. You can also follow The Wrong Station creative team on Twitter at AEW Saxton, AJV Batello, and Jacob BRDS. And until next time, thank you for listening.